This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 131. Psalm 131, we're continuing a series of studies in the Psalms of Ascent. We'll be in uh, these Psalms, Lord willing, uh, the next couple Sundays. And then in October, uh, return to the New Testament to begin a series of studies in the book of Romans. But for today, we are in Psalm 131. So follow along with me. Hear the word of God. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up, my eyes are not raised too high, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth. And forevermore. Let's pray. Father, this is not merely the Word of David, it's the Word of God. Father, as we study it today, we pray that you would take your Word through your servant David, inspired by your Spirit, and use it, Lord to instruct us and minister to us and to grow us in your grace. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Calm and quiet. You know, the morning of September 11th, 2001, was anything but calm and quiet. Yeah, we often have times in our personal lives, our work lives, that are anything but calm and quiet, but nothing uh, of the magnitude of that Tuesday morning ten years ago. So much violent loss of life, so much destruction of property, uh, national icons actually, so many people afraid and grieving so much evil. And all right there on live television for us to watch, even as it happened. Not just in you or me, but in our nation, in our culture, it has made a huge difference. And we come to this psalm, you have to ask, how does Psalm 131 fit into a world like that. Very well, actually. Because Psalm 131 is about being calm and quiet on the inside when everything around us is coming unglued. Psalm 131 is about the experience of a mature Christian. 
but a mature Christian. And it teaches us a couple of important lessons we need to know as we follow Christ in this crazy and unpredictable world, whether it's in your family, whether it's at the workplace, at school, or even on the national and international stage. What are these lessons that it teaches us? Well, first lesson it teaches us is to beware of runaway ambition. Beware of runaway ambition. Now, we read these words, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up, my eyes are not raised too high, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. And I don't know about you, but when I read that, I kind of have this, huh? Kind of, kind of reaction. You know, this, this verse tends to go against who we are. If not as Christians, then certainly as, as Americans. You know, where we like to be seen as ambitious. Ambition is a good thing. And we look at this and we say, well, you know, is the Bible saying we just should sort of become couch potatoes and, and not really try to do anything? Well, of course not. Of course not. Uh, I like the way uh, I like the way Derek Thomas uh, used to be associate pastor at First Pres Jackson, Mississippi, now in First Pres uh, Columbia, South Carolina. He comments on this verse. He says, "You know, as you're having that huh reaction, he said it's like a text for the death of theology, isn't it? Why study anything that's going to prove too difficult? Let's go back to the comic strips. Well, that's that's kind of the reaction you get at a first glance. But what's it talking about? Well. Obviously, that's that's not what it's saying. It's not saying we don't do things that stretch us. We don't attempt great things. It's not saying that we don't uh, that we don't try to uh, to take on new challenges and meet new goals. But it is a warning against runaway ambition. That the very language, lifting up my eyes, lifting up our hearts, raising our eyes too high, reflect a certain level of pride that is inappropriate. For the Christian. Now, we could look at this talking about runaway ambition in, in several different ways. First, of course, talking about runaway personal ambition, uh, a warning to us in our own lives of, of trying to attain more than God has for us. Or to put it this way, a warning against trying to be God himself. Many of you may be uh, familiar with the old legends and stories of uh, Dr. Faust, Dr. John Faust. Uh, the legends uh, arose in Germany, uh, popularized by the writer Christopher Marlowe uh, in England uh, in the very early 1600s, 1604. Uh, but Faust was a scholar. He was involved in law, in medicine, in theology, and he became discontent despite great achievements in those areas and others, he wanted more. He didn't want to be in the service of humanity and in the service of God. He wanted to be in the service of himself. And so he makes a deal with the devil. He enters into a pact uh, with Mephistopheles, the, the devil's representative, that would give him great power and great success. But of course, you make a deal with the devil. The devil wants something in return. And the deal was after a certain period of time in the earliest legends, about 24 years, then the devil would come for his due. And that's what happened. Uh, Dr. John Faust sold his soul to the devil. He had great power, magic power, great success, superhuman abilities. But of course, it came time to pay the piper. And after 24 years, uh, the devil came to drag him off 
to hell. And even today, his name has become an adjective. To be Faustian is to compromise your integrity for the sake of personal gain or success. And that story has often been told in different forms to warn against those kinds of deals, compromising who you are, compromising your reputation, your integrity for the sake of short-term gain. Now, of course, Dr. Faust is not alone, and we see this in the Scripture. Lucifer, who for his pride was thrown out of heaven, uh, more clearly, Adam, uh, who for raising, trying to, to, to rise to too high a station, was thrown out of the Garden of Eden. So that's one kind of ambition that this passage would warn us against, is basically trying to violate what separates us from God, trying to become God ourselves. Another is societal ambition. These verses certainly speak to uh, us personally, but they also speak to us as a society. And as we uh, think about 9-11 and uh, what that did to our nation, uh, this these verses warn us as a society against trying to follow some sort of utopian vision, as though we could ever have a world where our nation truly is safe uh, from outward attacks or even from inward decay. You know, after 9-11, there was a passage that was referred to frequently. The passage was Luke 13. It was verses 1 through 5. Uh, where we read there were some, some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered them, Do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, Jesus says, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or Jesus brings up another case, those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And the application is pretty obvious. I mean, we look at what happened in New York and in Washington, D.C., and in Pennsylvania on 9-11. Why did that happen? Well, what warning should we take away from that? Well, we're all going to perish. Let's just don't do it without repenting and being right with God. That's what Jesus is saying. We should learn from these things and recognize that in the world, these kinds of things happen. Yes, ultimately under the sovereignty of God, but also because it's a fallen world, because people are in rebellion against God and they do evil things that harm themselves and that harm others. As a society, we are to beware of some sort of utopian vision that one day, if our, def- if our defense is just strong enough, or our politics is just right, or whatever, that it's all going to be perfect. It won't be. It never will be. That was the, that was the sin of, of Babel in Genesis chapter 11, where they're trying to build this tower to reach up into the heavens to make a name for themselves. And God humbles them. Because that was runaway Ambition. They were seeking for themselves this utopian power and vision for themselves that simply is out of place and unattainable in this fallen world. We need to recognize that Christ died to redeem the cosmos. He will establish a new heavens and a new earth where there is no more sin, where there are no more terrorist attacks, 
where there is no more war, where there's no more crime, no more tears, no more death. But we aren't going to do it. It will not happen until Christ inaugurates it, until he returns and ushers it in because of his redemption of this fallen world. And so these verses warn us also against this utopian vision, this over, uh, this runaway ambition for a society. But it also challenges uh, our ambitions also and warns us against just unreasonable ambition on a personal level. There is a sense in which there are certain things we should just be content about. I will never have a career in the NFL. Not big enough, not fast enough, not coordinated enough, just isn't going to happen. I will never be a concert pianist. Just don't have the talent. Didn't start when I was two or whatever it takes. It's not going to happen. It would be foolish for me to try to, try to, to make the Atlanta Falcons. It would be foolish for me to try to start a career as a piano player. It's just not going to happen. And so on a very practical level, this passage come back, comes back and warns us against a lack of content or a lack of realism about who we are, about how God made us. There are certain people who can play in the NFL. There are certain people who can make a living playing the piano, you know, Carnegie Hall or wherever. Uh, praise God for them. But we need to be realistic, not unrealistic, because we assess our talents, our abilities, our capabilities in, in doing what we do in life. That's not to say you don't try something for fear you might fail, but it is to say you need to be realistic about the uh, intelligence, about the physical abilities, about the talents, opportunities that God has given you. And instead of lamenting what's not, Make the most of what is and what God has given you. And that's what he's saying here. My heart's not lifted up. Eyes are not raised too high. I don't occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. There's There's a great contentment here. That we need to have if we're going to enjoy this, uh, this calm and this quiet that it speaks to. So that's the first thing here in verse one, especially is just this warning against runaway ambition, whether on a personal level, whether on a national or world level. Second thing that it teaches us and really more in verses two and three, and that is while avoiding and bewaring of runaway ambition to cultivate a mature trust in the Lord, to cultivate a mature trust in the Lord in its place. Verse 2, I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. Now, what does this verse say? Well, it doesn't mean we have to just become a baby or become a complete loser, an ambitionless loser. You know, uh, absolutely not. One of One of my favorite books by Steve Brown is uh, his book, uh, No More Mr. Nice Guy, Saying Goodbye to Doormat Christianity. I like it. Mean, it's funny. It's hilarious in places. I don't agree with everything he says, by the way, but uh, he, he does make a good point. Um, the answer to trying to become everything is not that we just settle for nothing. That's not what this psalm is saying. But rather, verse 2 means that we live our lives each moment, each day, at a mature level. Trust in the Lord. Now, do we know what it means to trust in the Lord? We know what it means to believe in Jesus for salvation. 
but then we live each day in trust in the Lord. We say that. Conceptually, I think we understand that. But existentially, in our daily experience, do we know what it means to trust in the Lord? To have a mature trust, a confidence in the Lord. Eugene Peterson, in his book, uh, and he comments on this psalm, he says, Christian faith is not neurotic dependency, but mature trust in the Lord. And that's the point here of this, this passage. You say, well, you're talking about maturity. It talks about a child with its mother. Why mature trust? Well, because notice it's not just any child. He says, I have calmed and quieted my soul. Notice that there is an active work here at something that he does. But the, the metaphor, the picture is like, like a weaned child with its mother. Not just a child, a weaned child. You know, not, not just uh, an infant, uh, but a child who has achieved some level of dependency. One writer puts it this way. So the Christian is not like an infant crying loudly for his mother's breast, but like a weaned child that quietly rests by his mother's side, happy in being with her. No desire now comes between him and God, for he's sure that God knows what he needs before he asks him. And just as the child gradually breaks off the habit of regarding his mother only as a means of satisfying his own desires and learns to love her for her own sake, so the worshiper, after struggle, has reached an attitude of mind in which he desires God for himself and not as a means of fulfillment of his own wishes. His life's center of gravity has shifted. He now rests no longer in himself, but in God. You see the difference. That's, that's the point of, of this example that he uses. And that doesn't happen easily. That, that adjustment the child makes, nor the adjustment a baby Christian makes, and God sometimes helps us in that adjustment. It may have seemed so much easier when you became a believer. And then it seems to be getting more difficult because God is, is weaning you from infancy into being a more mature child of God. Another writer puts it this way. He says it's a blessed mark of growth, a mark of growth out of spiritual infancy when we can forego the joys which once appeared to be essential and can find our solace in him who denies them to us. So it really comes down to this. Do you love God or do you love what God gives you? In immature trust is I love what God provides for me. Mature trust is I love God for who he is even when he denies me those things even when he doesn't seem to answer my prayers right away, even when I find myself in difficult situations. Well, how do we get there? Verse 3, he gives the answer. Because verse 3 is his, his speaking out of his own experience to Israel. It's kind of like back in the previous Psalm, Psalm 130, verse 7. He now turns and speaks to those around him. And he has had this experience, and now he's telling other people about it. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. It's a constant thing. It's not a fitful thing. But from now on, forever, hope in the Lord. Not in the blessings of the Lord. Not in yourself, to be sure. But hope in the Lord himself. Charles Spurgeon, the 19th century Baptist preacher, spoke of this psalm. He said it's one of the shortest psalms to read but one of the longest to learn. 
I think he's got a point. It is something, though, that we need to learn. If we're going to come, if we're going to be mature followers of Christ. Well, every day has its frustrations, those things that drive out the calm and the quiet if we let them. And occasionally a day may hold its absolute catastrophe for all of us. Well, how do we maintain equilibrium? How do we remain in? How do we return to that place of calm and quiet? How do we enjoy that peace that Jesus said he came to give us? Well, we need to be careful. We're not falling into the trap of runaway ambition, either for ourselves personally or for this world in which we live. We need to cultivate this mature trust in our Heavenly Father. And as the psalm itself says, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth forevermore. Let's pray. Father, we do hope in you, trust in you, and forgive us for our lack of trust in you. Father, whether it's just a Monday morning irritation on our return to work or school or airplanes crashing into buildings intentionally. Father, we pray that we might know your peace. We pray that we might enjoy that calm and that quiet in our hearts in the deepest place that this psalm speaks of. And Father, that we would live as mature children of God. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.